You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Welcome to the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast, brought to you by Exodus Trail Cameras, the number one podcast for bow hunting product information and hunting stories from across the nation. And now, here's your nine-fingered host, Dan Johnson. All right, everybody, welcome back to the most kick-ass mother podcast in the entire universe. All right, get that through your heads. Okay, I'm just teasing. I'm trying to be aggressive. It's not working. Anyway, today's Thursday. You're listening to this on a Thursday. And this introduction, oh wait, before I get into all this other stuff, first off, I want to tell you about what this podcast is actually about. His name's Shane Kirby, and the dude straight up kills giants on public land in Texas. So... You don't, when you think of Texas, you don't think of public land. You think of giant high fence operations. You think of, uh, you know, highly managed large sections of private ground. Um, but there is public ground, and Shane Kirby is a master of hunting them. And uh, today he talks about the ins and outs, his strategy. Uh, and, and the thing is, he's, he's fairly new probably compared to the rest of us he's fairly new to uh bow hunting so that's what today's podcast is all about now my goal with this podcast is to you know be as unbiased as humanly possible whether that's when i talk about gear uh whether i have somebody else on the podcast talking about gear that was my phone that just went off and i want to get you guys you know the best information but i also through my partners want to give you really good deals on their products and i i really scrap for uh when i negotiate these partnerships for some kind of discount code now some of them some of them can do it and some of them can't but just because they can't doesn't mean uh anything it just means they just they at this time they're not interested in doing it but i i still support their product but here i just want to go over the five partners that I have and that can actually save you some money on their products. And to be honest with you, they are all really good deals. So Wasp Broadheads, uh, if you enter the code nine fingers at checkout on their website, that's the number nine followed by the word fingers, you will receive 20% off of your purchase. 
you're not going to find a discount like that anywhere else. So go to wasparchery.com and buy some of their broadheads. Use the discount code 9FINGERS. That's the number 9 followed by the word FINGERS, and you're going to receive $20 or 20% off your purchase. Now, Ozonics, right? On all orders over $400, you are going to receive a $50 discount by entering the code 9FINGERS17. So number 9 followed by the word FINGERS17, and you're going to receive $50 off of all orders over $400. So again, a great discount. Exodus Trail Cameras. These guys have been with me since day one. $20 off of your uh, trail camera purchase. And that is, again, nine fingers. The number nine followed by the word fingers. Uh, And here's one that I think uh, a lot of guys are the most excited about. And uh, that is... First off, they're giving away a ton of products starting on July 1st, and that's Lone Wolf, right? So you need to go to lonewolfhuntingproducts.com slash nine fingers. That's the number nine followed by the word fingers and enter into their giveaway. You have to enter in your first, your last name, and then you have to enter in your email address twice, hit submit, and you're entered into the drawing. Um, Not as many people have signed up uh, for that that I... Uh, for that giveaway than what I thought. And uh, uh, so basically the chances are better. However, you still need to do it. Why? Because as soon as you, as soon as you sign up, you will receive a code, a discount code, and that's for $50 off all orders over $200, right? So basically I think uh, retail, their, uh, their assault, is 250 bucks so you're getting it for 200 dollars. that's a great deal and everybody wants a lone wolf and now here's a, a great chance to get one for damn near 25 percent off so uh, uh, be sure to take advantage of these discounts uh, that i've uh, been able to work out for you guys and uh, hopefully you can uh, buy some of this gear or support the companies that support me uh, and uh, hopefully I can uh, save you some money along the way so there's that other than that guys before we get into this I I just want to reiterate National Deer Alliance National Deer Alliance I I I beat this horse to death but it's very important to me also the t-shirt at bustedrack.com go buy the Nine Finger Chronicles t-shirt that is at bustedrack.com and it should be up in their header scrolling through uh search for it and uh i'm giving all of my profits to the national deer alliance i'm donating all the profits i make from that t-shirt to the national deer alliance and uh then i'm gonna have nick the ceo of the national deer alliance on the podcast and we're going to discuss what they're going to do with that money so there's that Enough of that, all that talk. I've probably bored you. Hopefully you're not skipping through all of these intros because literally there are discounts and giveaways almost every podcast that I mention. So please do that. Take advantage of them. And please listen. Don't skip anything. But now it's time for the podcast. And uh, we're going to get into this Texas 
public land killer, Shane Kirby. All right. On the phone with me right now, Mr. Shane Kirby, all the way from Texas. How are you doing today, Shane? I'm doing great. How about you, Dan? I can't complain, man. Um, it's been cloudy and rainy in here in Iowa for about, oh, four or five days now. So I'm pretty excited for this upcoming long Memorial Day weekend to get out there and hopefully try to get some trail cameras up and running. Yeah, uh, this type of time of year, man, I kind of hate it. I, I've got this love-hate <laughs> relationship with this time of year because, you know, turkey season just ended. You've got the long summer. And I'm trying to get ready for uh, Elcon in September, so I'm doing a lot of training around that. But that's other than doing 3D shoots and whatnot, not a whole lot to do other than messing with cameras and the heat. It gets hot here in Texas. Oh, yeah. So just kind of a little bit of background on how you came to come on this podcast, right? Uh, First off, your buddy, I I put an email, or not an email, I put a a message on Facebook, and I said, hey, I want to talk to anyone who you feel is the epitome of a hardcore public land bow hunter. And your buddy Taylor uh, Elston sends me an email. He's like, hey, I got this buddy of mine. His name's Shane Kirby. Uh, he's, He's a pretty humble guy, but he is a killer in the woods. Um, and you, it sounds to me like you've been successful in Texas, of all states, on public property. Uh, and uh, that is why you are here today. Mm-hmm. All right. Mm-hmm. So so the first thing I want to I kind of, you know, I shoot from the hip a lot and in, I don't even know where we're going to be in five minutes. So I think, the, <laughs> I, I think the first thing that I need to point out is your buddy, your buddy, uh, Taylor, he says in this little email here, he says he shot a 180 inch deer on public ground in Texas. And you told me, well, that's the that's the net score is in the 180s, but he grossed over 190. So what I want to tell your buddy Tyler or Taylor is that you need better friends because <laughs> a, a, a good friend would have said it was in the 190s. Yeah, yeah, you get some people that are like, well, it's in the 200-inch range. I'm like, oh, it's not quite that big, but yeah. <laughs> but I tell you what, like I you know that that old saying nets are for fish. I mean, if you got if you shot a buck, <laughs> if I shot a buck and he he grossed 190, I'd tell people he grossed 190. I'm not going to say, "Oh, he netted 179 and 3/8." <laughs> I don't I don't care about that score. He's a 190-inch buck. Yeah. Yeah. So, but, uh, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. Man, how I got into bow hunting, it's kind of funny. Um, you know, my grandpa was a big rifle hunter and yeah. I grew up on a ranch, uh, in the middle of central Texas. My dad was a bull rider and raised bucking and bulls and whatnot. And so I grew up out in the middle of nowhere, but we didn't have any deer around there. We had a lot of hogs. And so I'm always you know, trying to chase hogs, squirrels, predator calling and whatnot. And, uh, so I never like deer was this almost mythical creature for me. Right. Right. Like we would get to go on deer hunts every now and then. And there was always this burning desire to go do it, but I never had anywhere to do it. Well, my grandfather passed away in 2008. 
he gave me his 243 when he died, and that's when I killed my first buck uh, with his gun. Same year he died. It's real special to me. But from then on, you know, we got invited to go hunting at some guy's place and whatnot. Well, we we lost that. And I kept looking for places and whatnot. You know, I kept saying, well, I'm not going to get any bow hunting. Then I had a friend of mine that got into bow hunting. He's like, hey, I'm bow hunting public land. This is in 2011, buddy Jay. And uh, he said, man, you ought to look into getting a bow. And so I looked at crossbows first. Um, you know, I mean, I know a lot of people kind of not crossbows, but I actually bought a crossbow first. Uh, wound up killing a hog with it. And then that translated over into me getting a compound. Uh, I killed my first deer in 2011 with a bow. So I've only been doing this about six years now. Six so, years? Yeah. Bow okay, six, six years, but it sounds to me like in those in those six years, you've been pretty successful at uh, locating and finding mature bucks in Texas. Yeah, and... And that's the funny thing about Texas, right? You know, you, you think out west, you've got these huge cracks of public land. Texas is different because the way that Texas works, um, I'm in kind of the north-central Texas area. We've got about seven different wildlife management areas within an hour to two-hour drive of me. And they're either national forests, they're Corps of Engineers, or they're um, wildlife management areas, which are managed by the state of Texas. And some of these, I mean, you've got 60,000 acres on some of these, and they're just, there's a different setup to each one, but it was really amazing whenever I started looking into public land in Texas and realizing, man, I, I've been missing out on this for a number of years. And so when I first started hunting, the, the thing that's really contributed a lot, the most to my success, I would say, uh, you know, there's this verse out of the Bible, uh, Proverbs 12, where it talks about how the lazy person will not roast his game. If I had to pick one factor over anything else as to why I'm able to get on deer, it's because I'm just out there busting my tail to do it. Yeah. And I think that's the number one factor. I mean, I added it up last season. I spent about 200 hours uh, just in a tree stand last year uh, during yeah. hunting season. And the other part of it, when I've got free time, I'm using that as I'm either scouting or, you know, when I'm preparing for elk season with a weighted pack or something like that, I'm trying to mix in any reason to get into these areas to just kind of learn some sort of advantage or learn something about that area where I'm planning on hunting uh, coming the next season. Okay. So before we get into all that, yeah, you know, you, you spend 200 hours is a lot of time in yeah. the timber, right? I've mm -hmm. grind, I've grinded it out uh, for some seasons that felt like that. I don't know if it was was that you know much time spent in, in the stand or not. But what do you what do you actually do for a living? Uh, right now, I'm going to seminary. Uh, okay. I'm a college student. Um, and well, I just got my undergrad, so now I'm in the master's program, but I do that. Uh, right now I'm working several different odd jobs uh, during the summer. Um, so yeah, I'm just kind of working a bunch of different part-time jobs right now. Okay. But it, the, the way that that works out is in the fall, uh, I'd set it up to where I'm taking a few less hours college-wise so that I can be in the woods a little bit more. 
Gotcha. Okay. So what? Real quick, what were you? Because you're 31 right now, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So what? What were you doing before uh, you decided to go to school to become a preacher? Uh, prior to that, I was a writer. Okay. Um, I did that for a number of years. Um, and I had a, you know, a lot of family events happen. God called me to ministry. Uh, and in doing that, um, just worked a lot of different jobs, worked at some churches, um, did part-time, uh, internship at a really large church up here, uh, in the, in the DFW area. And, uh, just kind of worked in that area. And it's the thing about it. I would only get really two days out of the week that I could hunt during the season. And it's still the same way. So I've got to capitalize on that time when I do. And so one of the things that I've been doing, um, and and we'll talk more about it, but kind of as you get closer towards the season or towards that rut period, uh, all day sits, that's something that I've changed in the past four years. That's made a huge difference there. Okay. So you don't spend 200 hours in a tree stand just because you really like uh, whatever you're doing, right? You, you don't just, yeah, I like deer hunting. I'm going to spend uh, 200 hours in the stand with a bow. You are pat. You have to be passionate about that. When yeah. was that? When was that trigger for you? How old were you when it was just like, boom, I'm going to spend as much time in the tree stand as humanly possible. Well, I was 24 when I got into bow hunting and you know, that first year that I hunted, it was kind of this, you know, I was doing what all my buddies did where you go in in the morning, you hunt the morning until about 10 o'clock, you come out, you have lunch, you know, you walk around Walmart or, you know, Gander mountain or whatever store there is there. And then you go back in the woods about three 30 and you start hunting again, you know, and I just, that first year I killed a spike and it was just kind of a fluke where I sat up in this area where I'd been seeing deer move through there. And I feel like I got lucky the first year. And from then on, it's like, okay, there has to be more deer movement and there, there has to be more bucks. There has to be something that I'm missing that I'm not getting about this area. And so really it was my, um, I killed that big buck in 2012 and that's kind of where it clicked because when I shot him, shot him at 1030. Um, and that's a time where I would have normally been leaving out of the woods. Right. Right. And I start looking back on it and I, I guess the best way to put it, there was a time, uh, the following year, 2013, where it was going to be really icy. We got some bad storm uh, that was going to be coming through. And so I decided, uh, you know what, I'm just going to tough it out. You know, it's going to be 30 degrees for the high, which is cold for Texas. You know, brought food, brought all this stuff to the tree stand because I'm like, okay, I'm going to hunt all day. And sure enough, I uh, had a three-year-old 10-point come out at uh, about 2, 2.30. And I smoked him at 35 yards. And that's when the wheels started turning that hey something different is happening here than what i would normally think a buck would be acting and and part of the reason behind that with texas with it only being two percent public land 
the majority of people that you talk to in Texas, they wind up, unfortunately, just or however you feel about this, they go and they sit in a blind and they look at a feeder. And they get out there, and, and there's nothing wrong with that, but it's it's how you determine success, I guess, or how, how you want to hunt. I, I don't have any problem with that, but generally speaking, that's what most people think of when they think Texas. They think baiting, and they think a box blind. And... I started asking myself, okay, if that's the way most guys hunt here, then does that translate over into public land? And sure enough, it did. But one of the things, you know, I started asking some guys that I, you know, I would run into people when I would be hunting on this public land. And one of the guys, it's a really funny story. When I shot that uh, 190-inch deer, I'm getting ready to go drag him out. And I go to get my bow, and I come back, and there's a dude standing over my deer. And at this point, I'm freaking out because I'm like, okay, is this dude about to try to steal this deer? Like, what in the world is going on? Turns out this dude was hunting about 100 yards away from me. And I didn't even know it. But this guy, uh, I've gotten a friendship with him. He's an older gentleman. But we started kind of, you know, we struck up a friendship there. And I found out some of the things that he was doing uh, was he was doing these all-day sits, you know, hunting in the middle of the day, staying out there longer. And I started realizing that there's a reason why uh, bucks move during the middle of the day. And you've got a couple factors going on there, right? Number one, okay, a deer is a ruminant, right? So they, they chew their cud. So with it being a deer that you know, they chew their cud, obviously, most of the people are going to know this. Does are going to feed in the morning, okay? And with that doe feeding in the morning, she's going to have to sit down at some point and start chewing her cud. Well, older bucks know this, right? And so what happens, these deer, these older deer, it's easier to find a moving or a, a stationary target than it is to find a moving target, right? Right. These older bucks would start moving during the middle of the day because you got two factors going for it. The does are bedded down, so they're easier to find. But then you've got hunters coming out of the woods, and deer know that. Yeah. And the thing about deer that are pressured, pressured deer are far easier to pattern than deer that get lower pressure. So, and I don't walk us through that. Why? Why do you feel that is that a pressured buck has, you know, an easier is easier to pattern? The reason why I say that, okay, you think about what that deer's life is like. Uh, in the area that I hunt, at least, you're butted up against a lot of urban areas. Uh, you don't have, I mean, some of it is rural, but you've got these hard barriers. I mean, you're going to have, whether it be, you know, a, a lake, neighborhood, you know, property, highways, things like that. That deer lives his life in that area, okay? When human interference comes into the area, I mean, you, you hear a lot of guys talk about that whole October lull thing. I, I was listening to something y'all were talking about that the other day. Yeah. I think it has something to do with hunters entering that animal's area and their, their patterns change up. I mean, secondary, you've got their food patterns are changing. But the only thing that stays constant throughout that really how your does operate because i mean i don't think a does pattern changes much unless until you get human activity in there 
Right. So with that being the case, if I'm looking at an area and I know that there's a doe bedding area over here and I've got an open field here and then I've got feeding in some area there, then that buck's normal path on his day-to-day route is going to be through slight cover to that area, okay? But thinking about it in pressure, he's only got so many options for how he's going to get there. And so what I'm doing from my perspective is trying to put up cameras. You know, a lot of the time I'm trying to run cameras in August, um, July in those months. The reason being is because with it being uh, in non-hunting season, I don't have to worry about my cameras getting stolen as much. But my reason being behind that is that that buck, once human pressure comes into the equation, he's obviously not going to come out in the open. He's going to have to move through these travel corridors in a different way. He's probably not going to move until the last 30, 20 minutes of daylight, really. Yeah. And so until you get that area that, and that's the thing, I guess, I'm trying to think of the best way to put it. October has been kind of a, it's a hit or miss for me. And so I think that it gets easier to pattern them in the second half of the month. If that makes sense. After there's been some kind of initial, uh, human yes. pressure in that timber. Right. Okay. Perfect example. Um, Last year, the last buck I killed, um, I killed two bucks in four days on two different wildlife management areas last year. Uh, the last buck I killed was on December 26th, okay. saw 29 does, one buck. Okay. W- and why? The, the, the reason why with that, that particular area with where it was, there was a natural funnel there. And you have boats coming by on this area with duck hunters and whatnot. And when the duck hunters would come by in that area, deer would come piling off the island. Okay. And it and it wasn't really a, an island necessarily, but it's just kind of this way that it the land contours. Mm-hmm. And so it would force animals through that area. Now, you're not always going to get lucky enough to have those type of contours in place, but if you've got human pressure pushing animals through that, then they're going to stick to that heavy cover. And it's just a matter of figuring out how they're moving through that. Okay. So are you setting up finding your access or finding a stand location, finding your access routes to that stand location? Are you finding those based off of where, pressure is coming from and you're hoping to get the buck as it's kind of pushed away from that area into that yeah. new pattern yes and and part of the thing that i've done in the past really three years now i started hunting out of a canoe okay. and just kind of thinking through different ways that i'm going to access an area because for lack of a better term you've got pressure from people that are you know non-hunters and i think deer kind of get to the point where they understand that this is a human that it's not a threat because these deer are seeing people constantly in the areas that i'm hunting but then once you have that hard pressure from hunters where they're encountering them then they start to realize the difference pretty quick and the thing was you know in trying to figure out how i'm going to access an area 
if I have to go completely around this bedding area, you know, and walk a half mile to do it, I'm going to do that to try to not disrupt a bedding area where that deer may be, if that makes sense. So there's a lot that goes into how I access an area. And I think that's kind of one of the big things that I've been using over this past three years that's made a huge difference in how I hunt is I just went to a, uh, a mobile, uh, I'm, I'm hunting out of an XOP walk on stand okay. and I've got a set of sticks with it and the ability to be able to set up in a spot, you know, I'll, cause what it looks like the day before I decide to hunt, I'm looking at the wind. I've got these areas figured out where I want to go and based off of wind, what day of the week, because that's another thing. If it's going to be a Saturday and I know that there's going to be more hunters in that area, then I'm going to be more apt to sit on a choke where deer are getting forced past me. Okay. But if it's during the week, then I don't have that working in my favor. You see what I'm saying? Right. And so when I'm going into that area, I can set up on trees where, you know, these deer never essentially saw me coming. Now, one of the things that I'm trying to do when I'm getting into that area is I'm trying to stay off of these main trails where, you know, other hunters may have been coming in and I'm trying to see if I can side skirt it somehow. Okay. So, yes. So before we get into the access, any more of the access in the tree stand locations in particular, I want to know about how you find these pieces of public land in the first place and then how you know what part of that public ground is good i mean is it through scouting is it through digital maps how do you go about finding those places okay the first thing i do um randy newberg had something a couple years ago that he talked about when it came to hunting public land out west and it's where he would have these overlapping factors i think he used it through onyx maps but he would look for a number of things that would correlate where it had to be like three miles away within a mile of water and within two miles of, of feeding areas and he would overlap those three and you would wind up with these pockets of land now, i don't have onyx maps anymore but based off of those factors the other thing that i add into that is you know, last year for example um i wound up uh, arrowing a buck i hit him way high but it was about a 140 inch deer didn't recover him saw him walk off i had my i'm shooting a single pin sight i had it set for 27 yards he walked in at 18 i wanted to cry over that but the reason why i say that that deer i shot him 150 yards from a hiking trail where you've got people that are normally hiking up and down it that's perfectly legal in that but most hunters would never think to set up there yeah. and why is that well Deer get used to that human factor of people walking through the woods. And so it's finding these little pockets because you got private land, you know, another 200 yards on the other side of that. So where are these little pockets where deer, most hunters are going to overlook them. These deer know that they're safe sitting there until all the hikers are gone and they can go into that area and feed at night because it sits over a field. That's part of the equation. Now, secondly, 
you know, you start out by looking at a map and saying, okay, I've got this entire map here. What if I didn't have other human pressure to account for? If there were no other hunters, where would I set up? And then my second thing to do is to go in and look at those areas and lay eyes on it, boots on the ground, that type of deal. Because 90% of the time, when I see an area on a map that looks perfect, when I walk in there, I'm going to find somebody stand from last season set up within 50 yards of that area. Then from there, it's okay. I know how that buck would normally act. He would normally walk through this spot. How do I set up closer to cover off of trees that other guys may not be able to utilize because of that stand that I'm using? How do I factor in the wind? How am I going to get in here? And then I kind of catalog that in the back of my mind. Whenever I've got the wind situation right, if this is you know near doe bedding areas, then I'll come in and hunt that. So I'm always trying to have about five spots in the back of my mind for that morning uh, before I even go in where I'm looking at the wind, time of year, all that stuff. Okay. One thing that I want you to elaborate on is you mentioned, okay, these pockets, right? Mm -hmm. You've mentioned these pockets several times already. What specifically, what do these pockets look like and I guess, you know, I know they can be different for different places and for different people, but for you, what do they look like and why, why are they where they're at? Usually the underlying factor I've found is that you're going to have to be pretty close to cover. You're okay. going to have to think of how does that buck come to that area and feel safe. And so a lot of the time it's been areas that if you're at ground level it's going to look the, the brush is going to be so thick that you can't hardly see right and when you get elevated up above that now that's the hard part is finding trees that you can actually set up in that and i've had some success hunting out of ground blinds in that type of um pocket for lack of a better word that that's the number one thing I would say is whether or not that deer feels safe. But secondly, where is it in relation to, do I know the area well enough to know whether or not there's does, is there a doe bedding area close to that? Is there feed those type of factors? So I'm trying to think of the best way to sum that up. When you're setting up in these areas, some of these pockets you'll find, really wind up working but then other ones necessarily that may be hunted and you didn't know it and that's the other problem with it too is that with public land you know you could have some other guy that could have been hunting in this and you you never knew that that spot got blown up the day before you know right right so then you're using these pockets you're you're first finding the initial hunting spot Okay, well, right. I know that there's going to be a hunter there. Then right. you're finding the pockets that are almost like their secondary route once once the pressure hits. Right. Okay. Right. Now, are you? How are you entering those stand locations? Okay, you found these pockets. You've determined kind of where you need to be. Are you, I mean, are you scouting before the season starts, or is all this done during the season? most of my scouting i'd say 75 percent of it happens before the season okay and then what is going on during the season 
you know, I've got an idea in my head how I think this is going to work, but I'm always trying to make tweaks. Right. And, you know, I mean, last year, for example, the area that I was hunting, um, it, it sits in a, under the floodplain. And so, you know, we had a, a big flood where the whole wildlife management area was under 10 foot of water up until, you know, August. So there was no vegetation in there. So I had to scrap most of my plan for that area and do it on the fly. And so you've got an idea of how things ought to work in your head. And it still wound up being that after the fact, guess what? Deer were still moving the same way they were prior to all the vegetation going away. Okay. And so, you know, the other thing is I find it rare that most guys are serious on public land. And so you're kind of dealing with most guys of, for the most part, whenever you have other people that are interacting with where you're at, uh, they're usually coming in and out every now and then you're not seeing them to the same frequency that I was hunting, if that makes sense. Gotcha. So whenever I'm deciding to go into these areas, you know, that's the hard part is, is this an area that receives a lot of high pressure? Cause if it receives high pressure, then I'm using a, a really roundabout way or I'm trying to get in. Sometimes I'll hunt off a bicycle. Um, there's an area where there's bike trail on the north side of it, and I'm able to utilize that uh, to enter that area. Sometimes, though, I mean, I just wind up trying to get in uh, where I have an idea of where I think these bucks are going to be bedded, and I'm trying to approach on the upwind side. Okay. Or downwind side, sorry, um, to set up in there, and I try to get as close as I can off a trail that I think they're going to use coming off of it. Okay. Now, is your access route, you know, you hear a lot of guys in public land say, you just got to go deeper and further back than the last guy. Well, if you're using the same access routes, that might not be a, a good idea. Just because you're parking in the same place, you're just going to have to go deeper and further. Are you using completely different access routes to those stand locations uh, in the well, first place? You know- that's a funny thing because I've got a buddy of mine and, and that's the thing I'll tell you. I'll, I know a lot of guys that I hunt with and there's some guys that I know that are better than me. There's some guys that, you know, they hunt less than me, but are still successful. It used to be in the back of my head that I thought you have to go as far in as possible. And then that way you'll get away from people. And the reality is that you're never going to get away from people. It's public land. Anything that you think is new, somebody has already been there. Right. But the reality of it is, if I'm going in off these areas, if you've got 10 hunters in the parking area and you're walking in off the same trail they were, you know, last year, the the buck that I, the first buck I killed last year, the path that I was using to access this area, uh, I had scouted it from a different side, but I had entered it. I've been using the same route going in and out, right? So the answer is, no, I'm trying to find a different way to get in. But I was actually parking in this neighborhood and accessing, because I, I had permission from uh, one of the homeowners there, and entering into the area uh, from the road, really, and dropping in and coming around there. Now, the thing about it, I probably had in the morning, I had two other hunters walk right past me off that trail. The funny thing was, I watched this buck, 
as he come in, he was about 40 yards south of that trail in the woods coming down this fence line that I was sitting at. Uh, There's an old fence line that's there. And he was actually going to hit that trail that was connecting to that fence line. So you had those two things coming together. So the answer is, uh, I mean, yeah, I'm always trying to think of different ways to come in there so you're not pushing deer. Okay. So what what are you focusing more on? Uh, where you think this deer is bedding or the pressure that other hunters are putting on, on the area? Man, the only thing that you can really count on, in my personal opinion, is pressure. Yeah. Because that deer, you know, I'm, looking, I'm thinking back on last year, and there would be several times where I'd look at my phone, okay, we're going to have a south wind, and it's changing tomorrow to an east wind. Because, I mean, the way that Texas works, you've got an, a north wind whenever a cold front's coming in, or you got a south wind, and it's going to jump up to 70 degrees in three days if we don't get another cold front. And so knowing that that's the predominant wind, the only time you're going to get an east and south wind a lot of the time is going to be when it's changing, right? Right. Well, when a buck is most vulnerable is when there's a wind change because he's got to change where he's going to be bedded. And so with that being the case, that could change from day to day. And, you know, how uh, weather apps are you know, not always correct. And then you've got, you know, how the contours of the land, it could change how that is. I'm trying to hunt off a of pressure uh, most of the time because if I know that it's a Saturday and it's sometime during the week of Thanksgiving, the woods are going to be absolutely hammered. And so if I sit at a certain spot that most guys wouldn't think of hunting, but I know that deer are going to have to be forced past that, then you wind up seeing a ton of deer, the buck that you may be after gets forced past that or whatever. And the other side of it too is that where you think that buck may be bedded on public, he could get bumped out of there pretty easily too. You never know if another guy could push him off of that. Now, some other guys have different ways that they try to access that, but that's my personal thing. Now, you mentioned something that I've heard other guys talk about, and I want you to dig a little deeper into this uh, and maybe give your reasoning for it. But you mentioned that deer, like on a different wind, let's say it's three days of west wind and then a south wind comes. Why do you feel that there's, you kind of mentioned it, that there's much more deer movement on a wind change than on a consistent wind change? Part of the reason why I say that is that that buck is always going to bed with the wind in his advantage. And if you have a wind change that he can't predict, I mean, animals live off of whether or not they can accurately predict things. And if they have something that's a variable that they don't know the outcome every single time, they're not going to trust that. Okay? I mean, you learn that with training dogs. Like, if a dog gets the same response every single time, he'll repeat that action. But if he gets an unknown variable every single time, he won't do it. And there's a similar thing there with deer in that, you know, that's the funny thing with does, and, and it's almost like they're a completely different species sometimes when I'm watching them, especially older deer. But you'll watch how these bucks, when they're 
when they're deciding that they're going to bed in an area, I've noticed that where I would think that they would go into, they're actually not sitting in the thick of it, but they're setting up where they're just on the edge of it sometimes where they can see, where they've got the wind in their favor and a lot of things like that. So when you've got a consistent wind, I feel like that bucks aren't going to move as much because they they know where they're at. I, I feel like a deer is most vulnerable when there's that wind change because he's got a lot of things that are up in the air with right. where he's going to be betting, if that makes sense. Yeah. It's funny you mentioned that. Um, Dan Infault, uh, the, the uh, podcast I did last week with him, he mentioned the exact mm-hmm. same thing where he said he felt that in certain instances, these big bucks were not betting in the thick, but right on the edge of the thick thickness and the wide open, like right inside of it. So they could, you know, have the wind to their, the, the, over their back would be the, let's see here there. They would be facing to the open where the wind was coming over top of their back through the thick stuff. So they could see what they couldn't smell. And he's, and he said a majority of the time, that deer will be up and gone before you even get to your tree stand because they watched you walk in. So man, the the funny thing about that, that 190 that I shot, my buddy, the one that was within 100 yards of me, the guy that walked up on my deer, yep. that guy kicked that buck up that morning cuz he got out there late and I was already in my tree stand. That guy said that deer was bedded out in the middle of just pretty much grass that was about waist deep. And he popped him up, and he's just sitting there like, wow, look at this. And and the fact is, it was out in the middle of this open field where he could see him coming. Right. And the funny thing about that is, there's an area that I hunt where you overlook these big grass fields. And I have watched bucks early morning, just as the sun's coming up, and you you got these hunters, you know, they come in like right at daybreak. I don't know if they're scared of the dark or what. But you'll literally watch bucks just melt into the grass as those hunters go past and they'll walk maybe 10 yards from them and the second that that hunter gets past that deer pops up and he's gone so he he's patient enough to where he'll he'll stay bedded down as the hunter's walking through the grass and knowing that he he, you know he's that's happened so many times before that it's not a threat so they'll bed down let the the pressure pass and then probably i mean are they heading towards the direction where the pressure came from initially yeah a lot of the time uh because that's the way that this particular area was and i mean you've even got deer crossing the road near the parking area on some of these units look i've seen that happen yeah and it's just the the thing a lot of people they think they want to know based off of hunting normally right like a public land deer for lack of a better word they don't behave like normal deer. They right. behave like an like something that's been hunted, just like you know a, a person that's been to war. They view the world differently because it's all about survival, 365 days a year to that animal. And you've got to put yourself in their frame of mind when you go out there that it's not the same. Right. Right. And that's crazy that uh, a deer that you know some people say 
can be really dumb at times and then at other times can do something so brilliant that it you know it blow it blows us away that oh there's not going to be a deer 10 year, 10 yards from me right <laughs> so so kind of i want to i want to talk about this 190 incher that you shot um, yeah. a little bit now did you know about him from previous years hunting him uh, funny did you story. find him on on trail camera how how that whole all come come about funny story okay um the way that i got into that deer you know i had a buddy uh jay he's the one that got me into bow hunting and this is a place where he had to get drawn for and so we put in together and hunted this area and i had been hunting a bunch of different spots and he told me that near this one area he had seen this really big deer right at dark and this particular area we knew that you know it, it has a tendency to produce pretty large deer and uh, he had shot a decent eight point um near this area that i had been looking into and i thought well man uh do you mind if i try out somewhere near there hunted near there didn't see anything came back hunted a different spot off of that and this was end of october and the funny story is right i'm, I'm set up and it's just about dark and i see this small eight point behind me and the eight point came around and i uh, pulled out my rattling bag and I, I rattled at him and straight out in front of me about 80 yards away outsteps that 190 yeah and his back is i mean he's got his tail up he's walking stiff-legged he's ticked off and at this point you know i'm watching it and i'm shaking like crazy <laughs> and I watch him come in. He goes to my right at 30 yards, walks behind a cedar tree, and I'm about 25 feet up. I'm a ways up in this tree. Turns from the ground, looks towards the tree like where I w- would have been. I haven't moved at all. Looks up my direction, turns and walks off. And I, I pull my phone out and text my buddy, and I go, dude, you shot your deer too early. <laughs> There's something. <laughs> and so the funny thing is uh, – I'm on this uh, forum. You know, I know you hear a lot of guys on forums like Rockslide, Hunting Beast. Yeah. I'm on a forum called TexasBowHunter.com, and uh, you know, a, a lot of guys talked about there being different deer in this area and whatnot. And I was friends with some of these people. And uh, anyhow, fast forward. The reason why I bring that up will be important in a second. But uh, two weeks later, November 11th sitting in the tree and all of a sudden i hear something i look off to my right and it's about 10 o'clock and i see that buck just cruising through the woods hard watch him run past me and i'm like oh man i, I should have been 40 yards further from where i was at you know i saw right where he came through anyhow i'm sitting there about 20 30 minutes later i look and here comes this doe and this doe is looking behind her, freaked out. And in the back of my head, I'm like, okay, she's either something's chasing her, okay, and it's everything started to click is what was going on. Here come that buck. He came in. I actually made a bad shot on that deer uh, because I was freaked out. I, I gave him a man. He didn't stop. I actually, uh, and I'll just admit it to you, I hit that deer in a ham. I mean, I know a lot of people are going to be – of this i i I got buck fever i panicked 
Yeah. Shot this deer, walked it, watched him stagger and bed down 70 yards away. And I watched that deer for about 30 minutes. I didn't have another shot on him. Heard a noise off in the distance. It was that guy uh, that I mentioned that walked up on a deer later. That guy actually started rattling, scared the buck. The buck started to walk off, walked across the creek out of sight and i thought oh my gosh i've just lost this deer so i'm sitting in the tree stand and i'm I'm praying i'm i'm just everything that i could think to do start to climb down out of the tree because i can't stand it uh and i look and there's white belly patch i walk over there yeah i'd hit the femoral artery okay but the funny thing about that deer and the reason why i bring up the forum thing from there I had people start sending me pictures of that deer. Next thing I know, I take that deer to the processor. I get a phone call from the game warden the very next day after I drop him off the processor asking where I shot that deer and if I poached it. Yeah. The thing about it, I come to find out, the game warden calls the guy that I walked that walked up on my deer, corroborates that everything was legal and whatnot, but come to find out that buck had been on camera at a place two miles away from there, had been all over their cameras the previous year, and they'd been after him for like two years. Oh, wow. Yeah. What a survivor. And and how old mm-hmm. do you think this buck was? You know, that's the frustrating part, was that I never sent the teeth off to get aged. Yeah. I would guess that that buck was a four- or five-year-old. Okay. His teeth were not in bad shape. That's the crazy yeah. part about it. Yeah. But... You know, the year before that, uh, people had pictures of him, and he had broken off almost everything on the right side and had, like, three points on the left. Right. So you wouldn't even think that this deer was much when you saw him with everything broke, but then, you know, boom, with everything, he's 190. Right. So. So I kind of want to jump to the, like, before and after the season, because it sounds to me like during the season – all you're really doing is micromanaging uh, where your stand locations are at based off of the scouting that you do before and after the right. season actually starts, right? Well, and, and that's true unless one thing happens in that everything that I thought I knew that season, that I have a ton of other hunters, and there have been seasons where I've had to just completely scrap large portions of my playbook and yeah. do it on the fly, but yeah, you're right. Okay. So then what I want to, what I want to know is let's, let's talk high level real, real okay. quick. All right. Walk me through how you approach, let's say how you would approach a new piece of property that, um, because you're running trail cameras, right? And in, 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 I don't run a lot of them. I mean, at most I might run three at a time. Okay. And I'm not keeping them out there more than maybe two weeks just because they'll get stolen. I mean, that's right. the reality of it. Okay. So with that said, then, I mean, what do you do? You throw them out for a couple of weeks, try to identify if a buck is in the area, take them down, and then you just wait until the season starts to go after them? Well, and, and that's the way that it works out here with Texas. I've got multiple wildlife management units. So if I kill one in one area, then I'm trying to go to the next. I mean – I'm, so I'm always trying to build because that's the thing. Uh, one of the podcasts I was listening uh, that y'all were uh, talking about is the guy who was saying that 
if you use the trail cam data from the year before, yep, the deer are going to probably act the same within a couple days either side of it. Yep. And I found that to be true. Um, most of my deer that I've shot, actually, that I, I shot my big deer on November 11th. And sure enough, when I wounded that 140 this past year, it was November 12th. So, okay. you know, you've got that looking through. So whenever I'm looking at a new area, okay, the first thing I'm going to do, I'm going to pull out a map, um, whether it be Topo, Google Earth, all these things. What I'm going to do, I'm going to look at several different wildlife management areas there. And the first thing that I'm going to do, what is the access like? Because if it has a, a ton of access points, then there's probably going to be a lot of hunters in that. And that's not saying that it's necessarily bad because you, you're hearing, you know, that I hunt based off of pressure. Some units that just are not that great, man. And that's the reality of it. And so when you're, you're trying to figure out what you're going to do, it depends on which one specifically. And so if it based off of access points, generally speaking in a new place, I'm trying to find what is the hardest one to get to. Now, as a backup, I'm trying to think of areas that have a lot of, that may have a lot of access, but it's people are going to have to work a little bit to get to it. Okay. Does it have, you know, because here's a big thing, okay? If I'm hunting an area that's off the side of the road and anybody can get out and walk to it, then I'm going to probably have a lot of foot traffic in and out of there. But if I'm hunting an area that you can get to by boat, I'm still going to have a lot of pressure there. But I'm not generally going to have a guy walking around in the middle of the day and looking for deer, if that makes right. sense. Right. So these areas where there's boat traffic, something like that, I'm going to try to figure out how I want to access it, but how are most other people accessing it? That's the first thing I want to know. And then are you planning and, on doing something completely opposite of what the, the majority of people are doing? Well – Generally speaking, yes, that, that has a caveat to it. Um, the great thing about hunting out of a canoe, I'm not going to skier every deer for, you know, a, a, a one mile square radius out of there. Right. Whereas a guy with a boat coming in, you know, roaring in, he, I've seen it happen where when that boat comes in and the deer just flood out of the area because they know. And so what I'm trying to do, my access is going to be slightly different, but okay. So now I've eliminated, if I'm going in by boat, then I've eliminated a little bit of my competition there. There's mm -hmm. going to be some guys that are going to still go in deep from there. And then you're going to have, you know, the other 10% that are going to be as hardcore as me, that are going to go in as far as I am, that are going to sit all day. Maybe I'm being on the high side of that. But I have that. Okay. Areas that I can see that fit into that area of you know, pressure to an extent, but still far enough where the average guy is not going to be there. And that's what I'm talking about with these pockets where you've kind of got that going for you. Right. Getting in there and laying eyes on it first during the season. Um, because if you can find activity – where somebody else has been sitting in that tree or something like that, chances are they're probably going to be back the next season to hunt that area. That's just right. been 
my experience. So what I'm going to try to find, if this is an opening, because most guys, just the reality of how most people hunt, they want to see. They were going to want to sit in this tree that you know has a little bit of cover that gives them about maybe a 20 to 30 yard shot so they can see the deer coming. Mm-hmm. Okay, so knowing that that's how that guy wants to set up on that area, what I'm going to do, I'm going to look at the trail and see where does it go through this heavy stuff that gives me an opening of an area, maybe 20 yards, where I've got a big open area to one side or another so that it's forcing deer through that. How can I hunt an area where it's going to essentially funnel those deer in some way through that and then... I'm waiting on when do I have the right wind because, you know, there's some places you just, you're never going to have the right wind to hunt it. And you never want to hunt a marginal wind. I mean, that's just been my experience. I mean, I don't run an ozonics unit. I've tried, uh, I've tried scent nose jammer, which I mean that stuff I've had hit or miss on that. I think it scares some deer that have never encountered it. But the point being I'm always trying to think what is the my wind my scent going to be doing when I'm hunting this area and I think that's the most crucial thing aside from figuring out everything else it, it it's a big puzzle and you're always trying to put pieces together to it. Is that a good explanation? Yep. So then after you find those specific access routes and you find those stand locations and and do you start hunting for that buck right away when the season starts or are you waiting for optimal conditions uh, and closer to the rut? Great question. I used to be that guy that when it was October 1st, which is when both season starts in Texas, I was in a stand no matter what. Right. I have only ever arrowed one buck in October. Okay. Ever. Okay. October to me, the problem with it, at least in Texas, it's usually going to be 90 degrees. Right. The first week of the season, you're going to have a ton of pressure because people want to get out there. Now, I will say this. The mornings are an absolute crapshoot. They're just, for me, I, if I didn't have as much free time as I, I do, October would fall on the lowest priority for me. Now, if I am going to hunt in October, I'm going to wait for those perfect conditions. I'm not just going to go sit in an area because even though I'm counting on, well, okay, some other guy may be hunting in this area or whatnot, I can remember opening morning. I I hunted this past opening morning at this area that gets – they do permits and they get about 20,000 permitted hunters a year. Now, whether or not all those people hunt, I don't know, but that's how many permits they had. I can remember sitting in the tree at six in the morning and it was dead calm, no wind whatsoever. And you could just hear deer blowing in the distance yeah, all over the place. And I had a doe come in. But other than hunting that evening there, I don't think you legitimately have a chance at killing that buck unless you can pattern him to a T. And the thing that's so hard about patterning deer on public land like this, last year we had an absolute bumper crop of acorns. Um, 
it, it's the best range conditions that we've had in state for a number of years. I, I talked to a wildlife biologist uh, a couple of days ago because uh, the deer that I shot this past year, uh, this buck's probably eight years old. I mean, his teeth were worn down to the gum line. Uh, just a really old deer, worn down, was eating full acorns, um, and it looked like he wasn't even able to process them. But point being, there were so many acorns that to try to pattern deer based off of their food source, it's like, okay, well, the whole woods is an oak thicket. How do you target a food source? You see what I mean? Right. Yeah, makes sense. Be- because even if you get that tree that they may be eating on, because what they'll generally do, they try to hit a certain tree for a period of time, and then once they drain that tree, they're on to the next one. But in Texas, we have pigs, so pigs could come through and hit that tree and just wipe that out the night before, and you'd never know it. Yeah. So, you know, the other option is, okay, well, in Texas, we're allowed to bait. I'm not somebody that puts corn out. Funny thing was, uh, two years ago, I put corn out, I'm sitting there on this tree i watched a doe come in dan this doe comes in walks right across my trail where i have walked in no alert nothing she sees the pile of corn dan i'm not kidding she sees a pile of corn and turns around and hauls butt out of there (laughs) so she she conditioned herself that a pile of corn was a bad place to be yeah they know, and this, I, I keep telling guys this, I have never killed a buck over corn in the state of Texas. The reason being, they automatically associate it with human activity. You can hunt off of it, maybe 100 yards either or off the trail coming to it. But it just, I, I keep telling guys, because most guys use it as a crutch. And the deer, they get conditioned to knowing, hey, this is a human that's going to be here. So that comes back to how do you pattern these deer? Well, if you don't know what their feed patterns are, because in Texas, you know, that's been one of the big pieces of the puzzle. Um, in 2001, I, I want to say, uh, they did a deer biology study. You can find it online, uh, but it breaks down like the majority of their eating habits. And throughout the year, Almost 30% of their diet in Texas is browse. Yeah. And even in the presence of acorns or corn or something like that, it's still 15 to 20%. So it's still not even the main food source. You see what I mean? Yeah. And so I think with the factors where you've got a ton of other hunters in the woods in October, because, I mean, it, the, the weather is changing. You've got bucks that are changing their patterns because even if you've got them patterned on camera, that buck is going to change how he beds in relation to does because the bachelor groups are going to be splitting up and all of that. It's such a, a month of transition that if you don't have any controlled parts to the variables, eh, you might get lucky. I mean, I've gotten lucky once doing it, yeah. but I think more than often you're just going to put sin out everywhere and uh, make those deer go nocturnal. That's my gotcha. view on October. Now, towards the end of October, I think it changes somewhat. I mean, the last two weeks in October and the first few weeks there in November, that that's probably my favorite time to be in the woods. Uh, so is your rut the same as the Midwest then, like uh, the first 
the first two weeks of uh, November up into the third week of November is your rut? Well, that's it's funny you say that because um, I was having that discussion with a wildlife biologist, and I, I tell most guys really one of the things uh, that's great about Texas, each county has like four to five wildlife biologists, and you can call them and talk to them at any time, and they love giving information, and it's a great resource. But one of the things I used to think, okay, you know, you look at the national average, it's November 15th is when most does are bred, and it's a bell curve. Right. And that's true for Texas, too, because you look at the fawn birthing rates. Well, and I used to think that, okay, November was your chance, and that's it. I arrowed that buck uh, that I wounded that I hit across top of back in uh, November 11th. Now, I'm sure that your listeners are going to absolutely annihilate me for this, but I'm just going <laughs> to tell you, I had a, I had this, I got drawn to hunt Neil guy last year, this short rabbit trail, and I was setting up a really heavy arrow for it, and I was mm-hmm. shooting five inch feathers. Uh, so I had the specific bow set up for that one. I wanted to take it into the woods, whitetail hunting. Had this new spot picked out. It's uh, December 2nd. So I'm not expecting anything like that. And sure enough, at 2.30, I have a doe come running past me with a buck running her. Like, t- hard. Right. And I'm sitting here and I'm going, oh, man. And I look off to my right, and I, I actually, I, I, we may have trail camera pictures of this deer. I'm not sure that it's him. It looks a little similar, but this buck would probably go in the 160s. Anyhow, this buck walks in behind me, 18 yards. I get the full draw. Now, the thing is, it's been raining, so my feathers were a little damp. I shoot. I watch the arrow wind up hitting this buck far forward. I watch him. He walks off. I wound up. I don't even know where I really hit this deer. I had a blood dog come out and everything else. We never recovered the deer. As far as I know, he lived. Right. But that was on December 2nd. Okay. So I had two chances at really big deer. But with that being December 2nd, okay, so that happens. I keep thinking, well, I'm not going to kill a buck this year. And then I kill the one that I did at that area uh, on December 22nd. And then I killed the next buck december 26th yeah and he was running the doe so i had the bucks running does in december 2nd and december 25th or 26th sorry day after christmas man the fact of the matter is your rut yes the majority of does are going to come in in november but here's the kicker on public land i have a theory and i, and I can't prove it but i think your buck to doe ratios are usually pretty bad yep and most people don't kill those so if you have a high population of does and a, a doe's only in estrus for 36 hours if she doesn't get serviced in th- that 36 hour period she's going to come in what is it i think it's like 25 20 days later Yep. And the thing is, too, on top of that, you've got rain conditions in the state of Texas where the best they've ever been. So those one-year-old does that may not come in, you know, I think there's like a 30% chance they come in. But if range conditions are better, they come in 
with more frequency. So you've got those two things operating on top of that. Man, I used to say the rut was in November, but it kind of it can keep going because that dog's going to get bred when she gets bred. And talking to the right. wildlife biologist right. for that area, he said some of these does aren't bred until January, which is right. crazy to me. Yeah, and uh, based off the information from our uh, uh, our podcast that we had with the professor from Mississippi State, he'll they will go in to estrus as long as I don't know until they're bred if the conditions are right. So mm-hmm. uh, captive, they had one deer go for seven cycles. You know that, yeah. that probably won't won't happen in uh, in the wild, but. Uh, you know, one, two, three different cycles until it gets bred is probably probably the norm if there's a yeah. high uh, doe to buck ratio. Well, on the other side of it too, you got to think you got a couple things, and I and I tell most guys this, and they don't. It doesn't seem to register to some people that factor of okay, if if I had if I'm that guy that only gets a couple weeks of vacation and I'm hunting public land. Yeah, November might be a great idea, but when you start looking at December and some of that, I still had rubs and scrapes going on up until the end of the season. Yeah. And the thing is, I actually noticed more rubs towards the middle or tail end of the first part of the rut, I would say, in November. I didn't really start seeing them until almost December. Now, that doesn't mean that they weren't there just they became a lot more noticeable and more pronounced and i think a lot of guys think that they miss out on the rut if they don't get to hunt in november but the reality is that factor of okay i know when these does they haven't been bred so if they're going to come in there's two things that come into play here number one those does they're bedding down in the middle of the day so bucks are going to run during the middle of the day but your older bucks are able to to keep going longer when the younger guys run out of body fat reserves man that buck that i killed that was you know however many years old he is his neck he looks like a brahma bull he's got a dewlap sagging down because he was so run down but he had the fat stores to keep it up so your your chances of killing a big old mature deer they're still there because they're the only guys that have the anything left in the tank to keep running. Yeah. Yeah. Makes a lot of sense, man. Well, it sounds like you got, you got it figured out down in Texas, man. Yeah. I, my buddy Taylor keeps trying to get me to go to Kansas. I'm like, ah, I'm busy chasing elk out of state. If I'm going to chase something out of state, <laughs> <laughs> you're going to be taking a trip, uh, out West this year. Yeah, I've actually, uh, I've gone elk hunting the past four years. Uh, Taylor and I went the first year last year. Uh, man, past two years, uh, my buddy missed a satellite bull. Just his rangefinder messed up. And then we had a satellite uh, last year come in at 20 yards, look straight at us, never gave us a shot. So we've gotten really close. I mean, it's on public land, bow hunting. It just hadn't gotten close enough to seal the deal. So hopefully that comes into play this year. (laughs) Awesome. Well, good luck on that, man. Well, thank you. I I tell you what, Shane, I, uh, I really appreciate you taking time out of your day to come on the podcast and chat with us about, uh, your public land adventures and, uh, good luck this upcoming season. Thank you very much, Dan.
You have a great day. Huge shout out to Mr. Shane Kirby. Thank you for taking time to come on this podcast. Huge shout out to the partners of this podcast. Wasp, Ozonics, Deer Lab, Exodus, Lone Wolf, Gearhead, and Ripcord. Be sure to support those companies. They support me, and uh, I'd really appreciate it because, uh, yeah, there's that. Anyway, if you haven't already, go leave a review on iTunes. Make sure you follow me on social media, and that is on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. If you guys know someone who is a big buck killer, know someone who uh, gets it done on public ground, has a cool story, uh, send them my way. Let them know that, uh, man, I got the beer burps. I'm going to be honest with you. I'm editing this podcast, and uh, I'm drinking a Coors Light, and I'm I got a little of the burps, and I'm sorry. But I'm too lazy to edit that out. So anyway, again, send me anybody who you think would be an awesome guest on your on this podcast. And if you want to be on this podcast, you know how to reach me, Facebook or ninefingerchronicles at gmail.com. Also, it's that time of year, man. I'd love to get some guys on who want to do some uh, bow reviews and or gear reviews um, because it's time to start buying products right now Um, other than that i think we're good to go have a absolutely great weekend if you get outside you know spend some time with the family uh, and uh, if you're going to be in a tree man wear your damn safety harness have a good weekend